Welcome, welcome. We're so glad that each one of you are here with, with us this evening. All of you that are joining us online, welcome. We're so glad. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this evening, and Paul begins that chapter by reminding us what Jesus did for us and reminds us that Jesus came, died on a cross, was buried, rose in three days, and he goes on and reminds us of the amazing grace that God has given us. The, you know, Jesus is the one that broke all the power of sin and darkness, and his love is mighty and stronger than anything we could imagine. And that's why we're here, is to worship him this evening. So I invite you to stand and let's worship him for his amazing grace. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all Amazing grace. 
powerful it is to be reminded of what you've done for us. As we just went through the whole plan of salvation as we just sang. Oh, all we can do is stand amazed in your presence to remember and be reminded of how you have resurrected our life. You've made us new people. Oh, God, you're more than enough. 
things that he's done in your life could even be the little things bringing a pet back when it got loose giving thanks because he is amazing because of your amazing love and grace for us. This is our prayer. Oh, to be like you. Give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you. Forever the hope in my heart. To be like you, give up all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you. Forever the hope in my
you've done for us our best response is just to give you our lives and desire to be like you the way that you express love to us help us to express that to others the way that you've been gracious to us may we be gracious to others and on and on it goes may we be filled with your peace your joy thank you that you have given us the fruit of your spirit that allows us to live and act just like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, our eyes, our ears to your word. Speak to us in Jesus' name. You would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 as we continue our study. Began preparing uh, and working through 15 and my hope was to get through 16. It reminded me of Thanksgiving. You go to Thanksgiving meal and there's like all of this food that's all set up along there and then you pile up your plate and then you realize that your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Well, that's kind of how we're going we're gonna to chew on 1 Corinthians 15. We may or may not finish all the way through it. Uh, we'll pick up what we don't pick up this week, next week, and we'll finish it off in 16. There's just so much here I don't want to necessarily rush through it. Paul's been working through the comments and the concerns that the Church of Corinth had. In a previous letter, they sent these questions that were coming and some of the things that were being debated about within the church and the corrections. And we last left off uh, the section of 12, 13, and 14 where Paul was addressing the use of the spirituals, the gifts of the speaking in tongues and, and such things that were there Chapter 15, he addresses another topic that came up within the church that really does need to be addressed. And that is the topic of the resurrection. When you think about the resurrection, what do you think about? Well, often people will think about the resurrection of Jesus. But there is a resurrection of the saints. There is What happens to us after we die? That's often a common question. What's it going to be like when I die? What's, what's it going to be like 
do I get a new body or am I just, you know, some butterfly floating around in the sky or, uh, you know, a, an angel with wings and all these different things that were going on? There are a lot of questions about it. Uh, but the biggest problem that the Church of Corinth has was people were saying there is no resurrection. In other words, you die, that's it. Now, there's a problem there, isn't it? Because within that, that concept, if there is no resurrection, it's called an annihilist theology. In other words, you just kind of live, you die, and that's all you do. Well, when we think about the Christian faith, if you say, as a Christian, there is no resurrection, what are you refuting? The whole foundation of the gospel message. The whole gospel is based on the resurrection. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus, but the bodily resurrection. And so, within this, Paul has to refute this heresy that was beginning to infiltrate the church. And there was internal debates about it that was going on within the structure. And so, one of the things that we got to understand is that for the believer, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, is God's fulfilled promise. It has been given to us as that, that, that promise of hope in a future. Death is man's greatest enemy. And so what ends up happening is we've we got to realize that at some point in time, death is going to be finally destroyed. Death itself destroyed. I was talking with a, a, a guy in our Bible study this morning. We were having this conversation. Yeah, and he, he made the comment this morning and he said, you know, I, I'm not scared of, of dying. I'm just not liking the journey. It, it's, it's not when he gets to heaven is the problem. But if you remove the resurrection, you remove all hope. And we... As a believer, we have a hope that's grounded in eternal life. I can tell you this, if this is the best that it ever is going to get, eh, I'm going to go back to my old life. In fact, we'll even touch on this in this Epicurean philosophy that Paul will bring up later in, in this section that's here. But there were some people that were saying that there is no resurrection for the dead, as we'll see in 1512. And so Paul opens this, this statement, in fact... Way back in chapter 1, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul addresses this a little bit, and he says this, Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? My assurance is at the end, when I die, when I leave this body, when I leave this earth, I am going to be confirmed by Jesus Christ in the presence of God. And there is a promise waiting for me, this eternal hope. That is in this. And we should all live our lives in light of the resurrection. We should all live our lives in such a way that this is not the best it's going to get. And we should all gain that understanding and, and live our lives as pilgrims that are just passing through. But if you remove the construct of the resurrection, there is no future, there is no hope, there is no gospel message. And basically you're calling God a liar within that. So is this a, a, a serious theological point that Paul has to correct for the church? Absolutely it is. Because Jesus came to give life and that much more abundantly. So we're going to pick up in chapter 15. We'll see how far we get. 
in this 15.1, he starts out with the foundation for the resurrection really is the gospel. In verses 1 through 11, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for died. And then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we, inclusive we, preach, and so you believed. So Paul starts out with the foundation of the message of the gospel that was presented to the church of Corinth. It is so frustrating as a pastor and as a teacher when you teach somebody the truth and you deliver the truth to somebody and then you see them drift away from that truth because of heresy and false doctrine that comes creeping in. And it bankrupts their faith. There should be no question about the resurrection. Paul gave them the truth. But they're questioning that truth. And in questioning the resurrection, they're questioning the very foundation of the gospel. When we question and when we doubt or we change the gospel message, we change our hope. Now, Paul starts out and he says, look, at, I preached the gospel to you. You've forgotten the gospel. And so within this, it's, it's more or less a rebuke. He says in here, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, you received. And if you notice how many times which is used, he's always talking about the gospel in which you were saved. And it was preached to them to provide the ability for them to stand. The gospel message is the foundation of our faith. If ever you get lost, if ever you get to a place where you're wandering or you're confused, there is one place you can always go back to. The centrality of the gospel message, which is what Jesus has done for you. You come back, who is Jesus and what has He done? And that will help you get refocused. The gospel was preached so that they could stand and it's the gospel that provides them salvation. It's interesting in here, it, it, verse 2 it says, by which the gospel, also you are saved. And the English doesn't do that phrase, good justice, because it really means being saved. It, it, we are in this process of what's called progressive sanctification. In other words, you are justified one time, you are sanctified, which is a process, but that process is a process of be being saved. It's an active process. And the way the verb is 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 set up is it starts at one point and is an ongoing action. And what you're doing is, is your be being saved, or it's this ongoing process of being set apart for God's holy purpose. 
I don't know anybody in this room or anybody that's watching online that's, that's perfect. We are all a work in progress. And so we are be being saved, as Paul would say, or this, this progressive action that God is doing. And it is all that God is doing. In Philippians 1.6 he says this, For I am confident of this very thing. Note, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here is a word of encouragement for you. God is doing the work in you. The sanctifying work of perfecting you is a work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And you say, well, I'm, I'm really struggling in my faith. Okay, that's fine. But trust in God to do the work. And as through the power of the Holy Spirit, He will change you and mold you and bring to light those things that are necessary for you to change. Now, you respond out of obedience, but you are being perfected or be being made complete. And so within this, we understand that this gospel that was preached to the church at Corinth and to us, it is, it is something that is a work that God is doing. But there's human responsibility. In verse 2 it says, If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Now here is the human responsibility. That if there is a conditional clause. The conditional clause is man's responsibility. It's what's called a third class conditional, which means it's potential. So what Paul is saying, the gospel which was preached to you is progressively setting you apart but your human responsibility is to hold fast to that gospel message. If you let go of that gospel message and the centrality of that gospel message and place your faith in anything else, then your faith is in vain. It's empty. There is only one place to put your faith, and that's in Jesus Christ. And Him crucified and rose again. The centrality of that gospel message. In other words, He's warning them, don't deviate from the original word that was preached to you. Don't deviate from it. Question, are there a lot of false teachers in the world today? A lot of false doctrines? Are people easily swayed by silver-tongued devils and those that would teach the new and greatest thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. You should always check everything against the Word of God and against the gospel message of who Jesus is and what He's done. And this message here tells us that we've got to understand it's a message that is bringing us forward and we need to hold on to it. We are all born in this world as sinners. Every single one. That's why we need the resurrection. That's why we need that new life. That's why we need forgiveness of sins. And so it's in that condition that we are born into sin and we are born dead that the gospel message gives us the opportunity for resurrection or for eternal life into that new life that God has for us. And that is what God has given to us. So Paul says, okay, you need to hang on to this. What do you need to hang on to? Well, he rehearses what they need to hang on to in verses 3 through 7. And he says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I received from Christ, that he died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, 
raised again on the third day, according to scriptures, within that. So we first find that he, he gives this fulfillment of prophecy. If you're taking notes, you can go back and read Isaiah 52, Psalm 22. The prophecies that concerning Jesus that he would die a sacrificial death and atone for the sins of man. That is the gospel message, that God would send his son. And so in Galatians 1.4, Paul would write, He who gave, him, gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. We know this. If you've been here in our church for any length of time, you know this. Because I say it every week. Jesus died for your sins because he loves you. Paid the penalty for your sins that separates you from God. And having died, he was buried, rose again three days later. Why was Jesus buried? Because he was really dead. He wasn't just a little dead. He was completely dead. In his human flesh, paying the full penalty for all his sin. And Paul will unpack that a little bit later. And within this, we see a literal death and a literal resurrection. Why? Because by faith, we can be joined via the work of God into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We practice it through the illustration of baptism. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might what? Walked in newness of life. That is what gives us the power, the ability to live in that, that resurrection power even now. And it's a condition that we would call already not yet. You're already new, but not yet fully glorified. Still that work in progress. And Jesus rose again on the third day according to Scriptures, overcoming death. And moreover, Paul says to the church at Corinth, and it was witnessed within this. The eyewitnesses. And he gives this chronology of the witnesses that were there. First to Peter, and then to the disciples, and then to 500 witnesses. And then he appeared to James, who is the brother of Jesus. And then to all the apostles, which most likely is the 72 that at one point were set out, the larger, larger group. And then last of all, he, as one untimely, he appeared to me also being Paul. Now we look at that and we say, okay, if there is no resurrection, then all of this is a lie. Remember the question. Is there really a resurrection? Paul says, yes, there is. That Jesus really died. And he really rose again, and it was really witnessed that he rose again. So why are you doubting? They're doubting because of this heresy that was, that was coming in to the church and trying to rob them of their joy. What happens if there is no resurrection? Well, Paul will get to that in a minute. But consider that. What if there was no resurrection? Paul finishes this off in verses 9 through 11 and talks about his apostleship. That what he received directly from Jesus as one who was born out of time. And Paul 
it's amazing how he looks at this because you can hear Paul's guilt within this. He says, I'm the last of all, born out of time. He considered himself the least significant. I read that and I go, but Paul, you wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Look at all the churches you planted. Look at how many people have come to faith. The, the incredible theology that you wrote, all of this. How can you consider yourself the least? Paul says, because I persecuted the church. There are certain sins that we may commit, even prior to salvation, that we find so offensive to our Lord that we never forgive ourselves for it. God's forgiven. God forgave Paul. God empowered him. Gave him the ability, the words, to plant churches. Used him mightily. But as you read this, notice how he belittles himself. Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had a hard time forgiving himself because of his past sins. But, he also knew the grace of God. Because he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul was humbled that God would use a murderer like him. One who rejected and killed people for calling on the name of Jesus. For the utter destruction that he caused on so many families prior to coming to faith. And God forgave him. And he came to the determination. And he says it. I am what I am. And by God's grace. By God's grace he's using me. Paul inserts this in there. Because he's not speaking as one that would belittle the, the church of Corinth, but for them to understand the power of the gospel that transforms life and the grace that it is grounded upon. He says, by the grace of God and His grace towards me did not prove empty. I love that verse. What does he mean? The grace of God and His grace towards me did not prove empty. You know what it means? God didn't make a mistake. He called me and He's using me and His grace is not empty. I am relishing in that grace. I am embracing that grace because it's by God's grace that I can even do what I do. Paul had every reason to quit and he didn't. Paul knew his past and it overshadowed his heart. But the grace of God enlightened him. And he says, I just accept myself as I am. A sinner that is saved by the grace of God. I'm remembering a woman who was at Simon's house when Jesus was there eating one time. And this woman came up behind him. While he, Jesus was eating and Simon the Pharisee was there and all the people were there. And if you remember the account, she broke the, the vial and poured the ointment over Jesus' head. And the, the smell of the ointment filled the house. And she was at his feet, weeping. 
And the tears were falling down and hitting the feet. And she lets her hair down, which was a disgraceful thing, and starts wiping and washing his feet with her hair and her tears. And they got upset with this woman and they said, get her out of here. What's she doing? Jesus said, leave her alone. And then Jesus rebukes her. He says, since I got in your house, you didn't even greet me with a kiss. And this woman hasn't stopped kissing me since she's gotten here. And in the end, he says, much has been forgiven. And the one that has been forgiven much loves much. That's why Paul could, could sit in that place of grace. And I think that's why Paul was so bothered by the fact that somebody would come in and try to rob people of the hope of the resurrection that was in there. And it didn't matter if Paul was preaching in his mind or somebody else, which tells you about the humility of Paul. He says, it doesn't matter if I was preaching it, Peter was preaching it, or anybody was preaching it. We're all preaching the same thing. We're all preaching the gospel. And it's that gospel is so that you could believe. Purpose, so that you could believe. The gospel is meant for one thing, to give people hope unto salvation. It's not an empty message, but it's a true gospel that transforms lives. Paul goes on and anticipates their sarcasm. In verses 12 to 19, he writes, Now if Christ is preached, and that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead didn't raise. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of all men to be most pitied. So, Paul anticipates in his letter their sarcasm. Now, keep in mind, he knows the Corinthian church doesn't like him very much. They've kind of gone off the rails. And he's correcting them in their theology. But he wants to ask the question, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection? Well, the fact of the matter, that first if there is a first conditional clause, if Christ has been preached, that he's been raised from the dead, and he is preached that way, in other words, the clarity of the gospel and the truth of the gospel is being preached to you, how is it that you're saying that there is no resurrection? Well, you have to deny the teaching. Okay, fine. Let's walk down that road. Let's walk down that road. You want to you go that way? We'll go that way. Let's consider the consequences of that. That if, if there is no resurrection, verse 13, if there is no resurrection, that's a second class because there is one. But if there wasn't, then not even Christ has been raised. Think about that. If there is no resurrection, if there is no possibility that a person can come back from the dead for eternity 
in this new body, transition, translated, if that isn't happening, then Jesus never rose from the dead. Question. Who wants you to believe that? Who would really be behind such a teaching? Satan. If you think about it, when Jesus rose from the dead, wasn't it the Pharisees and the scribes that all got together and said to the soldiers, tell them that the disciples took the body? Satan wants you to believe that. Satan wants to devalue the resurrection. Discredit the work that Jesus did. Now, keep in mind, Paul speaking to the church of Corinth, culturally, the Greeks, the, the people that are listening to this letter, like some of our people today, they call themselves spiritual. Have you ever talked with somebody and you say, well, you know, are you a Christian? And their answer is, I'm spiritual. <laughs> spiritual. Ask them this question. What do you mean by spiritual? What does spiritual mean to you? Because I can tell you this, words have meaning. And I can use a word, spiritual, and somebody else can use the word spiritual, and they can have totally different meanings. Spiritual could be somebody that believes in all kinds of little floaty things in the sky and all that stuff. Spiritual could be a believer. But you've got to define your terms. The Greeks believed in spiritual. In other words, somebody dies and the, everybody has a spirit and their disembodied spirit just kind of goes to heaven. And we can go down that road and where they, they say, well, you know, we just die and their spirits just kind of go off and do that. But they don't, the Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection. And if you talk with people who say that they're a Christian, one of the questions that you can drill down on is, do you believe that Jesus physically rose again and that there is a physical bodily resurrection after death? And they're going to give you a deer in the headlight look. You know why? Most people don't think that deeply. They just, they believe in the movie, all dogs go to heaven and the rocks and the trees all go to heaven and all the, you know, even spiritualists will have everything has a soul. No, they don't. Paul's argument in this starts out with the basic. To say that there is no resurrection challenges the gospel at its core. If Christ hasn't been raised then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain also. Now, who's Paul speaking to? Christians. Okay, let's go down this road. If you don't believe that Jesus rose again physically, and the Gnostics were very big on this. They believed that Jesus, the Gnostics at the time, were only teaching that Jesus had risen spiritually, but there was no bodily resurrection. And they'll take the account where, where Jesus told Mary, don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended. And they'll say that it was because it wasn't, you couldn't cling on to me. And they get into this really weird thing. If you go down that road, then what Paul says, you, Christian church, should not even exist. If there is no resurrection, why are we here? Why does the church exist? And if there is no resurrection, then your faith that you have been claiming all this time is worthless. 
within this. And within this, we, we see him challenging them. Um, fourth, if the gospel is worthless, then your faith has got no value. Which means you really have no faith. There is no religion. There is no saving faith. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus, there is no conquering of the death, there is no gospel message, your faith is in vain, and you were born in sin, where does that leave you? Still dead in sin. Then what you're believing is a lie, and you're still dead in sin, yet you claim to be a Christ follower within this. And so you see how Paul tears apart their thinking. And the destiny of the dead, the destiny of the dead is directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus. If you remove that, then we all go to the same place. Either annihilation or hell. Whatever, whatever your flavor is. Neither place is very pleasurable. And so within this, Paul tears apart this, this concept of this physical resurrection. And says, no, we can't do this. Now, you say, well, how did this get in here? Heresy. There was a heresy that came around the church, oh, I want to say probably ten years ago. There was a book that, that was written, that was put out, it was called Love Wins. And the author of this book put out this, this, this concept that when you die, if you die apart from Christ, not saved, you die and you go into hell... That Jesus will come into hell, preach the gospel to you while you're in hell, and there you could be saved. It became a bestseller. Because what this teacher, I'll use that term loosely, that had a big following, had this idea, his concept was that the love of God will win, always win, regardless of what happens to you in this life or the next. And he carried that thought all the way out within this. And it was straight up heresy. Well, this heresy that was going on within this church was the removal of the baptism. But not just that, but there was another heresy that was going on. And so he goes on and he talks about this, this heresy that, that was happening and, and how empty their, their faith was. In fact, we'll read about it in a few minutes. In the Corinthian church, there was a heresy, and it's a heresy that goes around today, that you could be baptized for a dead person that is dead and in hell, and if you as a living believer is baptized on behalf, called proxy baptism, that you could be baptized to get Uncle George out of hell. Proxy baptism. And we'll unpack it in a bit. That's a heresy, is it not? You don't find that. But it made people feel good. And so these heresies are often brought about to make people feel good. I can tell you this. Sin is a serious thing. Death is a serious thing. Judgment is very serious. And God provided His only begotten Son to die on our behalf for our sins, 
so that the sin penalty would be paid so that we could be with Him. And try to create another gospel, something that makes you feel better, aside from that, so you don't have to accept that message, is heresy. And Paul says this in the end. If we have been preaching a lie and something that has no foundation, then we should all be pitied. Why? Because we're all going to burn in hell. That's the reality. And we should be pitied. If resurrection is false, all mankind is destined for sin. And their faith is vain. But it's not. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus has rendered death powerless. Death has no power over you as a Christ follower, as those who find their life in Christ. Notice in verses 20 to 28. But now, this is one of those really good buts I like in the Bible. Right? Let's get out of the muck. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. That is a great statement because that is a statement of affirmation. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep, for since by man, by a man, death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom, the kingdom to the God and Father, which he, or when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is, ex- that he is accepted who put all things under his subjection. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son Himself also will be subject to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. And you're going, Paul, don't speak double talk. Because <laughs> he does. What is Paul saying? Well, the big but first. You've been saying there is no resurrection. You're saying that Jesus never rose again. But He did. He did. Indisputable fact. The fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. And within that, he says, this is our triumph. Not only is Jesus an indisputable fact, but he is the first fruit of the resurrection. How do we know he rose again? Because of all the witnesses. But what does that really mean? He's the first fruit of the resurrection. Here in verse 20. Of those who are asleep, or literally those that are dead. is the one that gives us hope. And the meaning for life. To be able to have that physical resurrection. So we think about first fruits. First fruits is something that is mentioned multiple times in the Bible where you bring the first or the best. For example, Leviticus 23.10 says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap a harvest, then you'll bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So what was to happen was, everything that was the first... Of the harvest, the lamb, the firstborn, was to be dedicated unto God. And then from that first would come all of the remainders. Well, you get to be blessed by all the remainders. God gets first, we get the leftovers. 
not such a bad deal. Jesus is the first fruit or the prototype of the resurrection. And from that, we all benefit from that resurrection within that. The death, burial, and resurrection is the first offering to God as Jesus offered himself as that living sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin and to rise again. Why? Because, quite frankly, you and I couldn't do it. I couldn't hang on a cross, die, be put in a grave, and then under my own power, rise again. Oh, and by the way, there isn't anything in me that would be good enough to be able to pay for all of my sins. Jesus had to do that. So he becomes the first fruit of that resurrection within that, the prototype within that, that bodily resurrection. And then everyone after him would be in Christ and in that resurrection. And in that prototype, Jesus would die once and live forever. By the way, Jesus will carry with himself the incarnate body. When we see him, we will see the marks of the cross and the wounds. But he will live eternally in a physical, perfect body. Not disembodied spirit. Physical. We know Jesus could be touched. We know he ate. He was present. Physical. Yet, he was not limited to the things of earth. He can go through walls, appear, disappear. Multidimensional, and if you want to get into multidimensional physics, uh, Chuck Missler is probably the most proficient author on multiphysical physics and how there are dimensions within dimensions within dimensions. I tried sitting under a study one time, and in the study he just wanted to explain the ten dimensions that are available because there are three dimensions and there are dimensions within dimensions and so forth and so on and all of this stuff, and he lost me. I'm done. I quit. I just say, yes, okay. But we look at that. Well, how do we know that to be true? Because there's angels among us right now. You just can't see them because they're in a different dimension. Presence of God. Omnipresent. Different dimension. We don't understand it. We look at this, though. We say Jesus rose again in a physical body, not bound by the earth. For all those who are asleep, you say, well, what happened? What about Lazarus? Or anybody else that Jesus brought back from the dead? Right? Tabitha or those other people that, that are there. Well, the thing is, so like they died. And then like Jesus, poor Lazarus. Think about that guy. He had to die twice. Thanks, Jesus. I thought you were my friend. But after you die, and you're in the grave, post Jesus' resurrection, there is no more death. For the believer. So what is the value that we find in the resurrection? Paul explains it. The value is this. By one man named Adam, sin was brought into the world. In Genesis, God created Adam. Breathed life into him. He was perfect man. Said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. He does. One man's action had brought sin into the world. And everyone born of Adam from that time forward would be born into sin. And that one man, Adam, sin came in 
and death. Everyone born under Adam, every human being born under Adam, would be born destined to die a physical death. Everyone. We all will die a physical death. Unless, well, we'll read about later, something else happens. But, he says this, and here is the value of the resurrection. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that being Jesus. For as in Adam all die, notice, also, note the dative, I-N. In Christ, all will be made alive. When you have a physical birth, you come into this world, you are born dative in Adam, in his sin, in the contamination, in the death. When you are born again, you are born again in Christ. And you are born again in His resurrection and His newness of life. You're born again, and being born again, God says, I see you without sin because you are in Christ. His righteousness is put upon you within this. So you're made alive in Christ. All the offspring of Adam have a death sentence. All the offspring of Christ have righteousness. Let that soak for a minute. When you were born again, you are made righteous. Just if you had not sinned. Clothed with the righteous. God's judgment has already been made against that sin. In Adam... All will rise again into eternal damnation. In Christ, all will rise again into eternal life. The wicked will have a resurrection. But it's not a resurrection into heaven. It's a resurrection until eternal damnation. A lot of people will say, well, you know, the wicked just die. No, they don't. They will have a body fit for hell to feel the torment physically for all eternity. The believer will have a body that will feel the glory for all eternity. Two distinct resurrections. So you think that, you know, well, it's just one-sided. No, it's not. There is a resurrection after death. Paul explains that order. Within this. Notice each one in his own order. Verse 23. Christ the first fruits. Right? So he's the first. And that those who are in Christ at his coming. And who are in his Christ at his coming. The second. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. When he has abolished the rule and authorities. Within this. And he puts all enemies under his feet. And that last enemy will be death. The third is the third element are those that are judged. In the end, there's a resurrection unto judgment. As I said, all the wicked are going to receive a bodily resurrection within that. One that is fit to exist eternally in damnation. You are either raised for everlasting life or everlasting death. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, 
but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, that's a mind blower. And if that doesn't motivate you to share the gospel, I don't know. In John 5.29 says this, And will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There is a resurrection, and everybody, when they leave this earth, will die, and there will be a resurrection. Some to life and some to death. We call it death because we don't really have words that could share with how bad it's going to be. But Paul is, is exhorting the believers to correct their theology within this. He wants them to understand within the context of this that, that there is a resurrection and it's, we are going to be in that place until he returns. We'll touch on it a little bit later, but in context, take a look. and You can flip over. It's a little bit longer. Or you can see it up on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Paul explained this a little bit more to the church of Thessalonica. They thought the rapture had come and they missed it. And they were really super worried the fact that they missed this being taken up alive that will cover towards the end of this chapter. Because if Jesus comes back and if you are dead and Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection for the dead into eternity. If you're alive, well, then there's just a rapture and a translation where you leave this body behind and you go to be with the Lord. And he talks about this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, dead, so that you will not grieve as, those, as do the rest who have no hope. Why do they grieve? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those that are already dead, returning. That means to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, it means you're walking around and Jesus returns for the church, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When do the dead in Christ receive the resurrected body? At the coming of the Lord. When do we receive our new body? At the coming of the Lord. But we're second in line. Why? Because the first in line are the ones that are with the Lord in spirit, but their bodies are in the dirt. A lot of people say, well, you know, I, wanna, I don't want to be cremated. I don't want to be spread around. I don't want my ashes spread or anything. How big is your God? I've shared this with you before. You're all a bunch of dirt clods. The same 32 elements that make up dirt make up you, me. And if your ashes are spread in the ocean, does God really reassemble the old pieces? No. You get a new one. I praise God. He's not going to remodel this thing. I get a new one. As we'll, as we'll study later. But there is a transformation of this body. And again, he will cover this a little bit later. 
But what is the hope at the end of this? And keep in mind, don't get lost in the details. What is the main thing? Because I've heard people discuss all kinds of different things. You get your new body right away. You get your new body. You know what? I don't care. I just know I'm not going to be here. But what really is the main thing? It's the victory when death is destroyed. Our greatest enemy is death. And in the end, where he says in verse 26, and the last enemy will be abolished and it's death because he's put everything under his feet in subjection. All things are put into subjection and he exists, is accepted being God, the Godhead, who put all things into subjection. What is amazing in this is, first of all, Paul speaks of, of how things are abolished. Flip over to Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Says this The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were completed. Talking about the wicked, right? So they're still uh, in the ground. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over the second death that has no power, but they will be priests of God and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then you take a look at the tribulation saints that died during that time. All part of that time that there is this resurrection that is going to take place to get to the place where there's a final victory. Paul quotes Psalm 8, verse 6, where he says, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, Jesus. What's amazing in this passage is Paul lays out the fact that Jesus will be in charge of everything that has ever been created. The only thing that Jesus is not over is the Godhead. He is in the Godhead, and your head's going to start spinning in a minute. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Right? But Jesus the Son always remains in subjection to the Father and the will of the Father. So in the Hupotasso, or the order where he says in this passage, will be subject, verse 28, subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in, I'm sorry, verse 27. It is evident that he is accepted. Who's the he there? God. Is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, Jesus. So when you read Paul's double talk, he's trying to line out the hierarchy of the function of, of the Godhead. They are three in one. But again, don't miss the main point. Death will be destroyed. In fact, in Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14 says this, And the sea gave up the dead and all that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, all that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. We're all going to die once. You don't want to die twice. That's bad. Where death is finally destroyed. Why? Because everything has been put under the rule of Jesus. And so the devil, death, and the world system are all going to be destroyed. All wiped out. And a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation 
will be reinstituted. And you can read it in Revelation. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. Paul jumps back to this, this other argument that he anticipates in verses 29 to 34. If there is no resurrection then, if you're going to stick with that, then here's your choice. I just laid out to you the way to avoid death. I laid out to you the gospel very clearly. But if you want to reject that, here's what life will look like for you. Verses 29 to 34. Otherwise, if you don't want that, what will those who do are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. And do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak to this to your shame. So, he says this from the standpoint, if there is no resurrection, then it doesn't make sense. Then what you're doing doesn't make sense. So now he speaks about the baptism of the dead. And he says, otherwise... What will those who are baptized for the dead be? In other words, your ritual religious practices that you think you're doing that are helping your loved ones to get into heaven that are that you don't even believe in are empty. Are there people that practice empty religious rituals? Sure. Anything can become an empty religious ritual. You could take the Lord's Supper and have absolutely no meaning if you really don't believe in Jesus as Lord. You can be baptized and it will have absolutely no meaning if you really don't believe that Jesus is Lord. How ridiculous is it to do something to get people out of a hell that you really don't believe in, to get into a heaven that you really don't believe in, just because you want to feel good about them. We often do things to feel good or to make ourselves feel good about a ritual. No. Paul says it's ridiculous. Don't be misled by these people. And furthermore, if this baptism of the dead doesn't save them, and if vicarious faith doesn't save you know, and I... I got to think about this. Can I have enough faith for two people? In other words, I can go to heaven and say, God, you know, um, my brother's not saved, but I have enough faith for him. Can I, can I take my faith and put it on him also? Does that work? No. That's creating your own religion. But furthermore, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then why am I killing myself? And literally, Paul was. If there is no resurrection, then why am I traveling around being beaten by rods, stoned to death, being shipwrecked? Why am I even working so hard if this is fake? If it's phony? 
It doesn't make sense. The wild beasts of Ephesus, for him, was metaphoric. Because he was going against the religious leaders and fighting against the religious leaders who were just vicious against him. If that's the case, Paul says, we ought to adopt the theology of the Epicureans. Eat, drink, and party like crazy. Why? Because tomorrow you die. When I grew up in high school, there was a saying that we used to say in, in the days when I would party. And it was basically, live fast, die young. And I've heard a lot of people use that. Live fast, die young. And it was their way of trying to just enjoy life that you can. Get the most out of life that you can. Because tomorrow it's gone. Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad behavior corrupts good morals, as he says within this verse 33. Don't be deceived. People are influencing you all the time. All the time. Be careful what's influencing you. Pay attention to what they're bringing to you within this. He gives these three commands. And we'll, we'll finish here and then we'll pick up with verse 35. You'll have to come back as uh, they say for the rest of the story. But his three commands are this. In verse 34. Be sober minded. or I'm sorry. Do not be deceived. Be sober-minded as you ought stop and stop sinning. Why? Because some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Don't be deceived. You've been given the truth, and somebody tells you something, and it doesn't line up with God's Word, tell them to pack sand. Do not, do not be influenced. And that means influence from the pulpit, influence from your friends and family, influence from the media. Can you trust the media? That's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Don't be deceived, because all of this stuff is speaking into you these truths that are going to challenge you. So don't be deceived, but be sober-minded. In other words, pay attention, be alert, check it out, and... Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Make a decision within this. And he's speaking to the church of Corinth because they were sinners. And he says, for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. The people that you are allowing to influence you don't even know God. I can tell you this. If you have people speaking into your life that do not know God, cut them off. You can be friends with them, but you spend enough time with them, they will take you down. They will wipe you out. The people that don't know God are driven by a world agenda and a worldview that is contrary to God. And Jesus came to destroy the devil, death, and the world system. Who should be influencing us? The Holy Spirit. Where should we be getting our truth from? The Word of God. 
And you should be checking it out. Acts 17.11 And these were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness and then studied to see if it was so. Check it out. He says, I speak this to your shame. Why? Because you've allowed these ignorant people to influence you and get you to question the very gospel that centers you. Next week, we're going to pick up with verse 35, where Paul's going to be explaining the resurrection, what the resurrection looks like, how that resurrection is revealed, the changes that take place. We'll talk about the rapture, we'll talk about the victory, and then we will finish chapter 16, where Paul gives his salutations and a few teachings that are there. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. God, I thank you that you've given to us this, this hope and this future. God, it's amazing how you have reached out from eternity to give us truth. A truth that brings us to a place of possessing eternal life. But it's not something that we earned. It's not something we accomplished. It is a gift given that by faith you've given us this grace gift through your Son, Jesus. We celebrate that even now. And Lord, as we just meditate on this song, may the words of this song be the meditation of our heart. And may our praise be acceptable unto you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All these pieces Broken and scattered In mercy gathered
And we'll see you on Thanks Sunday. for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.